you're just joining us this morning and you're just getting on, glad to have you today. Uh, if you missed the earlier announcement, I'll make it really brief. I gave a really good detailed announcement a few minutes ago. But next Sunday, 10 a.m., Maritime Conference Center, Brother Ted Grossbach will be with us in person, in the flesh. You can touch him and make sure he's real. I'm just joking. Um, but he will be here next Sunday, and you're going to want to be a part of that. If you're not in the area or maybe you're going to be out of town, you still want to be a part of that, you can get a private Zoom link to be involved in what uh, in that in the, uh, our gathering next week. Praise God. Let's get into it if we can today. Let's just jump right into it. No more introduction, no more chit-chat. Let's just jump right into it. And I'm going to go to Matthew chapter 5. If you've got a Bible and you want to join along, that's great. If not, you can just bear with me here for a moment. I'm going to read a few scriptures here out of Matthew chapter 5. And Matthew chapter 5 is given the the the, the title of the Sermon on the Mount. Why is it called that? Is because Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, and Matthew chapter 7 is actually one long sermon or message that Jesus Christ delivers. And he covers a variety of topics, Matthew chapter 5 being the opening of that entire discourse. And so Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, and seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he sat, his disciples came Unto him, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, shall they be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad for great is your reward in heaven. That's a huge point there. We're not going there today. But where is our reward coming? We may not see the reward here on earth. If you're looking for an earthly reward, you may or may not get it. If you're doing what you're doing so God will bless this current life, he may or may not because he said the reward you're going to get for dealing with all this is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Now here goes, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but a salt lost it, his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and be trodden under uh, foot of men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. I want to take a few moments today and I want to talk to you about something that probably is familiar with you um, and its subject matter, but I want to go deeper into it. And I have probably talked about this here uh, on Antioch West at numerous times, uh, probably the last two years. There's something I have probably talked about more than anything uh, here and uh, what in what we've been doing. And I have sort of, I felt like I've attacked it in, in almost every single angle you can think about. And then recently, this last week, in our second Miler broadcast uh, that we do, uh, those of you that are part of the second Miler group, I did the podcast this uh, Sunday, uh, this last week. And um, if you're not a part of that group, we did a, bo- pro- a podcast. And in that podcast, I brought about, again, this whole 
subject matter in which I believe Jesus Christ built his entire kingdom upon this single principle. Now you can argue that maybe to a degree, but I believe if you look at scripture and you believe and you look at how Jesus operated when he came to this earth, he built his entire kingdom on a single principle. Now, for those of you that are part of the Second Miler group and you already heard this, I'm not going to go through the entire podcast like I did before, so don't panic and don't turn me out because I'm actually going to take it a little different direction today. But let's go back to that just for a second. The setting of John chapter 13, Jesus has now entered into Jerusalem. He's come in sort of somewhat triumphantly, but sort of inconspicuously. He did not come on a horse Uh, And a great stallion of strength followed by an army. He came riding on a borrowed donkey. Now he was greeted with great fanfare, but in reality, he was also facing tremendous opposition from both empire and temple. And what I mean by that is he was sort of sandwiched in between the, 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 the issues of the Romans and the issues of the Jews. And Jesus had become sort of the, 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 the lightning rod for both issues. And he comes into this and this is starting to boil. The whispers are starting to permeate throughout Jerusalem of this, of this troublemaker, this rebel, this, this, this revolutionary that is sort of bringing a disturbance to what we have carved out. Remember, the Jews were really big on the time of sort of having this, this understanding with the Romans. And the Romans allowed the Jews to be Jews. Uh, which was very unusual for the Roman Empire because usually when a Roman, when the Romans took over an area, that you basically did what the Romans did. I mean, you worshiped the gods that the Romans worshiped. But in this case, uh, the Romans had a negotiation, had a had an understanding, and the Jews and the Romans worked it out that listen, you can be Jewish and you can operate how you want to as long as you give daily offerings in the temple on behalf of Caesar. And so they had this understanding, this this setting, and. And the Jews were very cautious of making sure they kept this 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 very uh, 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 tenuous balance of peace uh, stitched together in any way and they could. So, in anything that brought disturbance to that, they did not like. And Jesus wasn't doing a good job at making sure the balance of peace stayed in place. And so now he's showing up at Jerusalem and there's been whispers in the surrounding areas outside of Jerusalem, all the way up into the Galilean uh, seaside. And then in the hills of Gal- uh, uh, hills surrounding Nazareth, there's this guy and he's doing miracles and he's calling himself God. In fact, he's being blasphemous because he's even saying before Abraham was that he was, I mean, he's calling himself the, the, the son of God. He's forgiving sin and he is healing and, this is bad. In fact, he even desecrated the Sabbath because he's done things on the Sabbath. And now he's showing up in Jerusalem and you have this undercurrent because there's a part of the people there that are starting to recognize this. But then the overarching power of Jerusalem is really starting to, to try to stop all this. And this is the setting, right? And Jesus in John chapter 13 is gathered around this group of men that have traveled with him for the last three and a half years. And they recognize this is not good. Because Jesus had kept saying over and over again that basically, listen, this is coming to an end. I didn't come to this earth. I mean, they had argued and fought about uh, who is going to be in, you know, Jesus is, you know, sort of tech, you know, our terminology, who's going to be a part of Jesus's presidential 
cabinet. I want to be the secretary of housing. I'm going to be the secretary of defense. I want to be the treasurer. You know, I want to be the vice president. And they were arguing. They even got their mothers involved. It was a mess because they were a mess a lot of times. It wasn't exactly like Jesus chose this, 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 this A-list group. He kind of put together a ragtag group of rejects. And they, a lot, they, 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 they didn't get it more times than they did get it. If you could say it that way, that's poor English, but they missed it a lot of times. And here was another opportunity because Jesus gathers them around the table. And um, in this one instance, the guy who, op, who, 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 who uh, was in charge of the money is acting weird. And we always thought he was kind of weird anyways. I mean, what kind of name is Judas? But, you know, we'll just go with that for a moment. But he's acting weird. And all of a sudden, he gets up and he leaves the room. Where's he going? Is he... You know, oh, maybe, okay, wait, wait, let's give him, let's give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he's got, maybe he's going out to buy some weapons. He's the guy with the money, right? He's going out to buy the weapons. He's going to go out and he's going to purchase us some swords and some spears and spears and some shields. And you know what? We're not fighters, but at least maybe we can stand a chance. So, hey, Judas is going out to, uh, to get some weapons. And Jesus, when Judas leaves the room, he turns to him and says, listen, I want to talk to you for a second. Oh boy, what's, you know, I can just see their anticipation. Okay, What's, what, tell us what to do, because this is not looking good, but you're God. You, I know you got a plan. What are you going to do? Like, are you going to like, you know, like, remember that time you, you turned the fish in the loaves and you multiplied that? Are you going to like touch us and we're going to multiply into an army? Or maybe you're going like, gonna, to gonna touch us and we're going to gain superpower. Like, I mean, like, we're going to become this incredible fighting force. Tell us what's going to happen. And Jesus shocked all of them by making this statement. He said, I want to give you a new commandment. And I can't imagine when he opened it up, opened up with that, I want to give you a new commandment. In their brain, they had to go, they had to be like, what? We don't need a commandment. We need a plan. We got enough commandments. Have you not read the Old Testament? They're in there. I don't, we don't need another commandment. In fact, you've already given us two commandments that are at the top of the list. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We got them. We don't need any more. We, we, we need a plan. Tell us what to do. And Jesus said, a new commandment I give you. And he says, love one another. Um, excuse me. I got a question. I'm don't, sorry, Jesus. Hello? Excuse me. Hello? I got a question. Um, I, I know you're Jesus, and, and I don't want to disrespect who you are. Um, but that's not new. Love one another. We kind of covered that. We already got that part. But Jesus said, I'm not done yet. Thank you for asking. Love one another as I have loved you. I could see the air just being sucked out of the room for a moment. What? Wait a minute. Time out. Because Jesus quantified and qualified the love he was talking about. You see, in the past, love was sort of ambiguous love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What does that mean? How do you do that? How do you know if you are doing that? How do you know if you're not doing that? Because if I ask all of you right now, do you love the Lord heart, your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? All of you would say, of course I do. But do you, how do you know you do? What, what qualifies you to answer that question with a yes? 
What is the quanti- what's, what in your life quantifies to the point where you say, okay, I love the Lord God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Here's, here's why. What's the fruit of that? Or is that just an answer to what you perceive to be a question? Do you love the Lord your God with the heart, soul, and mind, and strength? Of course I do. Or was it love the Lord? Was it a command or a question? It was a command. Well, a command has to have something to tie back to. Here's my obedience to the command, but we don't do that. We've turned it into a question. But Jesus brought about this new command. And this new command had a very easy qualification to it. It was very easy to follow. Love one another. Okay, that's easy. I love you. I love you. We all love. No, he said, no, 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 no. Love one another as I have loved you. Wow. That's a strong statement. That's a statement that kind of just crunches down on you. But then he went further. He said, by this, everyone will know you're my disciples, that you're my followers, that you are my representatives. Why? Because you have loved one for another. So Jesus broke down all of his kingdom to one principle. And his identifying mark that we should have as Jesus followers in the 21st century in 2022 is not by the building in which we go to church, not by the theology in which we hold to be true, and not by the fact we think we are distinct by the way we look on the outside. His identifying mark to be a follower and his follower was one simple principle, love one another. But not just love one another. Love as I have loved you. Now I said this in the podcast to the second milers and I'll just expand on this just for a moment because I want to get a little further today into another portion of scripture. And that is this. When we think of love as Christ loved us, what do we think about? We think about the crucifixion, right? Because the crucifixion is the pinnacle of a demonstration of love. When I see the crucif- when I think of love as Christ's love, it what greater love and man than this than a man lay down his life for his friends? That's sort of this idea, right? That that the crucifixion is the greatest pinnacle of love. Well, I'm not trying to be negative. I love all of you, but I'm not interested in being on display here this morning crucified. I love all of you guys. And in five minutes from now, they're going to pin me up against that door, nail me to that. And I'm just going to say, see, I love you. I'm not interested in that. I don't think you're interested in watching that. Although today probably, you know, it'd probably get more views. seems like the crazier something is, the more views it gets. But that's beside the point. We're not into views today. So if I am not looking at the fact of I'm to love as Christ loved me and he died for me. Okay, well, I'm not really interested in dying. Well, I guess I'll just love. No, you see when Jesus said to those men sitting there, love as I have loved you, it was personal because every one of them could think back to times in the last three and a half years where Jesus had made a personal connection with them Look past their character flaws, look past their shortcomings, look past their past, look past the fact of who society had said they were and had loved them, had changed their life. You see, it was personal. You see, when it says, 
love as I have loved you. It's not some ambiguous display of the cross of Jesus Christ. How has Jesus loved you? Where would you be today if it wasn't for the love of Christ? You see, we look at others and we judge them, but yet we ourselves have plenty to be judged for, but but by the grace of God. So let's take this a little further because this became the single principle by which the kingdom of God was built upon. But let's go here. I'm going to be following along for a few minutes on some notes. And so if you see me looking over here to the side, I'm not usually a big note guy, but I purposely have notes for a lot of this today because I want to stay on point. I am a, I can be an easy rabbit trail guy and I can get off in a bunch. And a lot of times I follow the Holy Ghost and that's what the Holy Ghost wants. But today I really want to stay on point in what God is trying to say. When the Colosseum, which if you still go to Rome today, you can see the great Colosseum on display. When the Colosseum was built, crosses, and the crosses were found everywhere throughout the entire Roman Empire. But they they didn't adorn buildings. They weren't like we see crosses today. They usually were adorned with naked men roped to or nailed to them gasping for air and begging for a quick death. This is what the cross represented at the time that the Colosseum was built. The cross was not just simply a mere, a, 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 um, how can I say it? The cross was not merely a method of execution. It was an instrument of terror. It was uh, the perfect blend of suffering and shame. I mean, it was a symbol of the power of Rome, but the fear of Rome. It was a reminder to the world that Caesar was Lord and Rome was eternal. That's what the cross meant. I know what the cross means to us today, but that's not what the cross was at that time because the cross was the, was the symbol. It became really the epitome of Roman power and Roman fear and Roman might and the reach of Rome that, that, Caesar, who was in Rome, could reach out to the far extents of the empire and crush anyone who stood in its path or try to rise up. But today, if you go to the Colosseum, there's a cross on the Colosseum. And the cross on the Colosseum today doesn't represent Roman crucifixion in in generality. The cross on the Colosseum represents one crucifixion. The crucifixion of Jesus, which we all know and understand. Because it was his crucifixion that became the catalyst for ending crucifixion as a form of punishment throughout the empire. But it's bigger than that. In the first century... The cross represented the height of cruelty, the height of pain, the height of suffering, the height of fear, and the height of power. But by the 5th century, let's call it that, the cross became to represent the height of love. It represented the love of God. And so by the 18th century, Pope Benedict the... Oh, I don't have it in my notes. I think it's Pope Benedict XIV, if I remember correctly. It was in Roman numerals, so I'm trying to remember. It didn't have a number. Pope Benedict XIV, if I'm correct on that. 
Pope Benedict XIV in the um, 18th century declared the Colosseum to be a sacred monument. And he dedicated it to the suffering of Christ. Now, I don't want you to see this fact for a moment. We're, gonna, this, we're going somewhere. It's not a history lesson. I know some of you who know I'm into history are like, oh, Lord, not another history lesson. I'm making a point here. Don't rush by that fact. That the Roman Colosseum, which really stood at the height of Roman opulence, at the, it stood as the beacon of Rome. It even stands today. A lot of Roman structures have gone away, but the Colosseum still remains. In in intact enough that we know it was real. It's not. It's it's reduced to half its size. It is a. It's it's an ancient structure that has been uh, looted and a lot of its stones used for other buildings. But it's still big enough now. You can see the magnitude of what once was. And this was in the ancient world, long before stadiums and arenas were built like we have today. This represented the height of of Roman engineering. It represented the height of Roman achievement, the Roman wealth, Roman power, Roman entertainment, Roman, Roman reach because they brought animals and slaves and gladiators from the far extent of the empire. If you wanted to see certain animals, you go to the Colosseum because they would go to Africa and they would bring animals. They would go to Asia. They would bring animals. They would go to the far deep recesses of the forests of Europe and Great Britain, and they would bring these animals and they would show them on display and all this stuff that we see that happened in the Roman Colosseum. But in the 18th century, Pope Benedict made the Colosseum a monument to the suffering of Christ. When you think about that, that's remarkable. The the Roman Colosseum is now a monument to the suffering of Jesus. The same Jesus that was viewed as the threat to the empire and, and, and consequently uh, crucified by the same empire that built the Colosseum. And now it's a monument to him, not to Caesar, not to Rome. Now you're making this a monument to Jesus and the suffering of Christ. And you're going to put a cross on this Symbol of Roman power now becomes a place in which the cross is placed. How did that happen? How did we go from where things started to where it ended and now where it is today? What was the catalyst for such a massive culture change? Something of that magnitude. What, what brought about something that created such a powerful change? And ultimately, if you study the Bible, it's really easy to see the answer to that question. It's in there. You'll see it. And when he hung, when Pope Benedict hung this cross over the emperor's gate. Now, I wouldn't just put there. He hung the cross over the emperor's gate as a as a as a as a as a, uh, a, a a dedication and as a memorial to Christian martyrs who had faced death but stood their ground. There was a statement that permeated throughout history. Now, I'm not here to talk about the Catholic Church. That's the that's that's the point. I'm talking about whether it was the Catholic Church or whatever the fact is, that that symbol now became a symbol 
for Christian martyrs that was a symbol for Roman power. It's remarkable when you think about how the tides have changed, how there could be such a remarkable cultural shift of that magnitude. Think about it for a second. Imagine going back for a second to first century Rome and walking into one of the house churches in Rome where people were gathering in secret, doing things secretly because they knew it was illegal and they were waiting for the proverbial uh, shoe to drop. And anytime someone could boast up in the door and everybody in there, you had to kind of, you knew them, but did you really know? Were they really there because they wanted to be a wanted to be a follower of Jesus or were they are spying on us to go report to the authorities so we all could be arrested and killed the next day? This is the reality. So let's take a trip back for just about 30 seconds to that first century Roman house in Rome with a, with a group of Jesus followers gathered together in a home. And I want you to tell them, hey guys, listen, you know this Colosseum? You know the Roman stuff down there? Hey, okay. listen, there's going to be a building that's going to be called the Colosseum because in the beginning of Rome, it wasn't there. It wasn't built till a little later. But it's going to be the height of Roman achievement. And they're going to do a lot of stuff in there. They're going to kill a lot of us in there. But listen, down the road, that's actually going to become one of the greatest monuments to what Jesus is doing here in this home. And Guess what? The cross is going to become a symbol of life, not death. The cross is going to become a symbol of love, not hate. The cross is going to become a symbol of salvation, not suffering. What would be their reaction? Uh, I can't imagine what the looks, what, what, what kind of look there would be on their faces that you would tell them that, you know, the same empire that's trying to destroy you in a few uh, hundred years from now is going to embrace you. In fact, not only are they going to embrace you, they're going to take over the entire Christian world. They're going to make it their own. It's going to become a Roman religion. I wonder what their thoughts would be. I, I would imagine in their eyes, that would be an absolute impossible thing. It'd be like you and I saying, we're going to start a church on Mars and reach the Martians. You wouldn't even imagine that's a possibility because you wouldn't even imagine there's Martians and you wouldn't imagine you could even make it to Mars. I get it. But they had to feel the same way. That had to be the same sense. But it happened. It happened. It happened. Why? What was it about what they did that created such a powerful change? And let's be honest, Christianity nowadays has been marginalized, has been pushed over into the corner, has been demeaned and talked about, and Jesus, people are leaving the church, but they still love Jesus, but they've got rid of the church. They still confess they believe in God, but they want nothing to do with his followers. How did we go from where the church started as sort of this Judean cult that came out of the hills of this Nazarene follower that happened to show up in Jerusalem at Passover and became another victim, and all of a sudden he quote-unquote rose again and quote-unquote left along his spirit, but okay, we don't know if that's the case or not, but let's be honest, it's still illegal. In fact, 
The people that have converted, most of them came from religion that now doesn't even disown them. The Jews disowned the, 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 the church. How would that happen? How's that going to happen? And nowadays we have technology and we have internet. I can broadcast to you whether you're here in America. And we have, we have people together. We have people right now joining us in, in Africa. The Parmalee is good to see you today. But we have people that are joining us in Africa. We have people that have joined us from all over, all over in America. We can do this. And yet, let's be frank. The world barely knows we exist. And if they do know we exist, they've already categorized us as certain ways. When you think of, if you ask the man on the street, categorize a Christian, what are some of the words you think they would use? Judgmental, condemning, unforgiving. You can't argue that because you, we judge one another with the same mentality. But yet we read this and we see that this group of people that most of them probably weren't educated. Most of them were poor. Some of them were slaves. Most of them didn't have any kind of true clout in, in, in society. They didn't have technology. And guess what? Time out. They didn't even have a Bible. They did all this without even having a Bible. They had to have some guy write letters to them from prison. And they had to take those letters and they had to copy them and they had to try to get them around. And give them to different people. And usually it was one person who was good enough to read them. Who could sit and read them to everybody. Because half the group couldn't even read. Only 10% of the ancient world was literate. 90% couldn't read. On average, 90% of the ancient world could not read. So in a congregation of 10 10 people, one could read. In a congregation of 100, only 10 could read. So you got one person trying to read. You got the rest sitting around listening. And... They have all these things. They got. It's illegal to be a Christian. Um, it's. It. You could be. You're. You know. I said always before. What a terrible way to share your religion. Oh, by the way, follow Jesus. It's going to be great. But you could be dead tomorrow. I mean, my goodness. Nowadays, we're like, follow Jesus. You could get a goldfish. You could get a bike. You could come to our church. We got theater seating. We got air conditioning. We got screens. We've got Disney World for your kids to go to and be entertained with. Our pastor's funny. We've got great music. We've got coffee in the lobby. We'll even give you special guest parking. We'll bring you right up front. We'll walk you in. You don't even have to do anything. Just sit there. Please come. And people don't show up. And yet their whole message was, follow Jesus, you could be dead tomorrow. Follow Jesus, don't tell anybody because they could kill you. And people flocked to this by the thousands. And yet churches sit empty today. Why? Why is this? What was different about the way Jesus set up that kingdom versus the way Jesus is operating today in our kingdom. It's a kingdom thing. Because Jesus really set up an upside down kingdom. It was a kingdom of the heart, a kingdom of conscience, a kingdom that would challenge and eventually flip the self-evident, self-centered scripts of that world view. And in the end, he would voluntarily lay down his life for his followers rather than demanding them to lay down their lives for him and he would require his followers to do the same that would be their distinctive trait their brand what they were known for the roman legions were were uh were were 
efficient and merciless in their roles as peacemakers. But Jesus, we read it, Jesus started the Sermon on the Mount by calling his followers to be peacemakers. But in the end, he would serve as the ultimate peacemaker by making peace between us and him through his forgiving of us when we didn't deserve forgiveness. He was the peacemaker by bringing the prodigal sons and daughters, the lost sheep, the misplaced coins, and more importantly, his enemies into his kingdom. Jesus did not come to eradicate. He came to invite. He did not come to bring war. He came to bring peace. This was what he was built on. And as citizens of the Roman Empire, one by one began to internalize and embrace the kingdom values of Jesus Christ. We see through that the empire itself began to change. Remarkable when you think about it. And as a result, the church of Jesus triggered the most, the, the most monumental cultural transformation in the history of the world. It was so monumental that calendars changed. We began to mark things as B.C. and A.D. because it was so distincting the change in our world from when Jesus showed up on the scene. How? How, this, how did this Judean cult that was birthed out of the armpit of the empire, let's be frank, Jerusalem and Israel was not at the top of the Roman list. It was the armpit of the empire and whose leader, it was a Judean cult from the armpit of the empire whose leader had been rejected by his own people and crucified by Rome. How could this group survive in the face of such overwhelming resistance? And how would this sort of upstart group of people eventually be embraced by the entirety of the Roman Empire? There's got to be something there we're missing. But you see, since the 4th century, because eventually Rome took over and Rome took pagan values and turned them into Christian terminology, but it still created the same value, and that's a whole other subject for another day. But the church has gone, since the 4th century, the church has gone to great lengths to, to create its own version of the pagan divide between sacred, sacred and secular. I could go into that for hours, but that's not the point of today. So like, take for example, animal sacrifice to appease the gods were re replaced by belief and doctrine. If you look at all the ancient religions up to that point, sacrifice, animal sacrifice, human sacrifice was at the was at the was at the 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 uh, the, 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 the center of appeasement to God. But when fourth century came and Rome started taking over and paganism started to filtrate into Christianity, we see the switch from from this 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 sacrifice of animal or human to Belief and doctrine. Think about it. From the very beginning, we were introduced to Jesus, whether that was a child or whether that was as an adult somewhere or later in your life. You were introduced to him and, and encouraged to accept him 
as your savior, but not as your king. You are, you are encouraged to accept Jesus as your savior, but not as your king. And we were told it's enough to believe. Just believe. But here's the problem with that. And I don't want to mess with you today, but I'm going to mess with your theology for a moment. We were told, accept Jesus as your savior, not as your king. And it's enough to believe. Just believe. Have faith in God. That's what the Bible says, right? Of course it says that. It says it right there. Have faith in God. But here's the problem. You don't find that in the gospels or among any of the early believers that turned the world upside down before the first Bible was even written. The first Bible was written because the world had already been turned upside down. And when we reduce Christianity or we reduce the church to a static belief statement, it provides us as believers with an escape hatch. Or I'm going to call it an excuse hatch. Reducing Christianity or reducing being a follower of Jesus Christ to belief makes, uh, how can I say it, sinking our faith with our moral platform effortless. That's why we can have Christians on both sides of the political aisle. We can have Christians on both sides of the political debate because we have reduced Christianity to beliefs. And therefore, if Christianity is based on beliefs and based off my beliefs and reality, and I don't need Jesus to be my king, he's my savior, which really is like basically reducing God to being your 911. And if you need him, call him. He'll be there. Dial 911. But if, if you're okay, listen, I've dialed 911 several times in my life. I'm glad they picked up. But I don't walk around every day thinking I need 911. I know it's there if I need it. In reality, 911 does not rule my life. It's an insurance policy. It's, a, it's, it's there for emergency. Jesus has been reduced from a king to a 911 dispatcher. What's your emergency? Yes, God, right now, I'm struggling right now. I'm dealing with fear. I've got pain in my body. I just lost my job. I, I, I don't know what to, how to pay my bills. My marriage is broken. My kids are lost. My husband just left me. My, my, my wife just, just, just kicked me out. My kids, are, they're, they're just going through so much. Help me. Hold on one second. We have someone responding to that call right now. Okay, thank you. Where, where do I go? I, are you sending someone over like a, a pastor or a preacher or, or maybe one of those super spiritual people that can come over and help me? Quick, dispatch somebody to help me. I'll never forget one of the longest three minutes of my life was when my wife and I were trapped in our closet. Thank God we didn't have kids. We were trapped in our closet while a man was attempting to break into our house and we're on the line with the dispatcher and she's telling us, stay calm. I'm like, stay calm, lady. Are you kidding me? I'll be dead in the next 30 seconds. I better not stay calm. You need to hurry this thing up. And my wife and I are on the phone with this dispatcher and we have the door to our bedroom locked and the door to our closet locked and we can hear the banging on the outside of our house and we're just waiting for any moment for them to come in. I wish this was a joke. Waiting for this mob to come in and do God knows what to us. And I remember it's the longest three minutes of my life, but I will tell you this, it was a blessing to have that lady on the line because she said, listen, stay calm. The police are a minute out. The police are 30 seconds out. They're on their way. They're on their way. And then eventually said, you can come out of your closet, sir. The Please have them. He's under. He's, they've, got, they've, got, they've got the guy. Everything, you can come out. And I remember, like, 
I'm okay now. She, but that's what Jesus has been reduced to. He's because we've reduced Christianity to a set of beliefs and we can believe and that belief lines up with our moral code. And for us, he's become a 911 dispatcher. But if you follow uh, Jesus throughout the gospels, you'll discover that the kingdom he introduced and invited us to participate was a kingdom that was characterized by public behavior, not by private belief. Woo, ouch. What he never said is as important as what he did. Notice that. I want to say that again. What Jesus never said was as important as what he did. Watch this. He never said by this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you believe correctly. We're so dogmatic and I know, trust me, I've come from, and I say this, a hardline Christian thought process theology and my, I'm right and everybody else is wrong. And so if you don't believe like me, automatically you're wrong. Now I know, I'm talking about the Bible. Listen, I know I'm, I'm getting a little, I know I'm, I'm treading on sacred gown here right now. Someone's already got certain people on speed dial. You're going to, Joel's finally lost it. He's left the reservation. But so much we can get so caught up in our belief being right that we forget what Jesus built his kingdom on. He did not build his kingdom on belief. He built his kingdom on love. The world will know whose kingdom we represent by how we treat, respond, serve, forgive, and talk about one another. As that's the case, we need to pack up. That right there ends it. That statement I just read, we're done. We need to just pack up because that's not what we're characterized by. We're characterized by, well, that church believes that. And if you go there, that church believes that. And if you go there, they believe that. If you go there, you can't do that. If you go there, you can do this. If you go there, you can't participate that. But if you go there, you can be, if you go there, you can be used and be a part of the praise team. If you go there, you can't, you can't even be an usher because you've got this stuff going on. That's how we're characterized, right? And so people window shop. They go to different churches to see which one fits them because which one will accept them? Which one will do that? And it's a mess. But Jesus said the world will recognize what kingdom we're about, not how we believe, not where we go to church. He'll recognize what kingdom we represent on this earth by how we treat, respond, serve, forgive, and talk about one another. Do you know, I just started it. Go read it. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Do you know how many terms, in case you think I've lost my mind, which I'm sure I have to a degree, but that's okay. I lost my mind, but Jesus found it. Thank you, Jesus. Do you know how many times faith is used in the Sermon on the Mount? I'm almost done. Give me 10 minutes. Do you know how many times the term faith is used in the Sermon on the Mount? You ready? Drum roll. You think about 20 times, 30 times. It's the Sermon on the Mount, right? It's the pinnacle. It's... Most people call it the greatest piece of it, the greatest speech ever given. Some call it the greatest portion of the Bible. Some call it one of the most powerful literary things ever penned. I mean, this is at the pinnacle. And so because have faith in God without faith is impossible. Please, God, that's got to be in there, right? How many times has faith been used in the Sermon on the Mount? You ready? Drum roll. Brrr. 
one time. One time. Oh, I don't know about that. Read it. Go read it. One time. Because the Sermon on the Mount really was a vision cast of how we should behave, how we should we respond, and what to expect along the way. It wasn't an instruction manual on how the followers of Jesus Christ were supposed to believe. It was how we should behave, how we should respond, and what to expect along the way. This is the foundational stone that Jesus laid to build his kingdom, was Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Look, here's a little part of that sermon that's a little uncomfortable for it. He said this, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Did he really need to say that? That's kind of common sense, right? That's kingdom of this world 101. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. We are professionals at that. We are good. If you're Republican, hate Democrats. If you're Democrat, hate Republican. If you're white, hate black. If you're black, hate white. If you're rich, hate the poor. If you're poor, hate the rich. If you're American, hate foreigners. If you're foreigner, hate American. If you're legal, hate the illegals. If you're illegal, don't trust the legals. We're built on that. Forgive me for a moment. I know some of you just got broke out in a cold sweat because I got a little too close to home. But that's exactly what we were told to do. We live that. Jesus says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Thank you. We got that. Next. But he said this. He didn't finish there. He said, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I need some water. Do what? Love my enemies. Oh, I know how I love my enemies. I love you. No, he said, love them the way I loved you. You mean I actually have to talk to people I don't like? You mean if they slap me on the face, I shouldn't slap them back? I don't know about all that, Jesus. I don't know if that's going to work in today's world. We're dog eat dog mentality. It's get mine before you get yours because that's how we are. That's even in the church. Get my blessing. Get my breakthrough. Get mine. Get mine. If I come, if I come to a gathering and I don't get mine and you get yours, I leave mad. Well, God, why did you why did you touch them? You didn't touch me. Why did you bless them? You didn't bless me. Look at all I'm doing for you, God. I'm praying four hours a day. I'm reading my Bible. I'm fasting. But you never do anything for me. But oh, so and so walks in here, and God, I know they ain't living right. I know they got sin and junk in their life. But you over there blessing them. What kind of God are you? That's exactly the way we are. But if we walk in and we get our breakthrough, breakthrough, you are the God of the breakthrough. Even when I can't see my way through, you are the God. I got my breakthrough. I can leave rejoicing. But my brother comes in broken, hurting. The, their life is a mess. My sister is going through pain and suffering in their life. And they walk out because nobody took time to go over to them and say, listen, I love you. Can I pray with you? Can I care for you? Can we just sit here together and talk for a moment to let you know you're not alone in this because you're my brother and you're my sister in Christ. But no, I got my breakthrough. But Jesus said, love them as I have loved you. Forgive me for being passionate, but it's hard to talk about this without getting passionate. I know I sound like a madman, but so was John the Baptist. Do we really believe this? Do we all do this? Do we? 
Do I? I don't, I'm, 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 I don't know yet. I'm trying. Odds are our theology, our belief system is buttoned up and proof text in place. We got that. We're good. And usually a lot of times it aligns perfectly with our own moral code. But do you actually love, serve, bear one another's burdens of people who aren't like you and disagree with you? Do you pray for anybody on the other side of the political aisle? Pray for, not against. Oh, I'm getting into it right now. I'm going to get into it. I'm going to make a mess of it, but that's okay. Oh, God, help my guy win the election. Oh, God, stop this, 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 this reprobate, this godless person from winning the election. Oh, God, help us to win. That's what the church has been reduced to. The church, when certain laws are passed, we come out and we say, we win. Look, we win without taking time to recognize there are people in this world that are hurting and that are broken, that they don't understand how all this works. And so they're hurt by what decisions are made. But we as the church feel vindicated. But because God was vindicated as if God needs our help. Uh, turn me off. That's fine. I don't care. Turn me off. I'm done. Yeah, Joel's lost his mind. That's okay. But read this Bible and tell me if I'm wrong. Go look at this book and tell me if I'm wrong. We're not supposed to be segregated by race. We're not supposed to be segregated by color. We're not supposed to be segregated by, by, by our, by our, 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 our economics, our education. And God forbid we're not supposed to be segregated by our Political standing. I don't sit here today as a Democrat trying to reach Democrats. I don't see as a Republican trying to reach Republican. I want to be a representative of Jesus Christ. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. I don't care who's your president. That's my president. That's my, you know, I, I'm so sick. If you have this shirt, God help you. If you have this shirt and you're a Christian, then God help you. But those who say Jesus is my savior and Donald Trump is my president, take that thing and burn it. Because I've got one Savior, but more importantly, I've got one King, and that is Jesus Christ. This president or whoever is not my King, I've got one King. And that King tells me to love as he loved me. Man, I tell you right now, I know I, I'm just, I can feel it. Woo! If you could sit, if, if you could shoot darts through a screen, I could feel it right now, but I'm not speaking today to those who want to just hold on to the way you are i'm speaking to those who are hungry to see the kingdom of god manifested in this world to see the world around us change well if that's the case we've got to stop holding on to our own moral and political codes and thinking because somehow we've found scripture to justify the way we are that we can judge and look at everybody and go they're wrong 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 this is not about abortion. This is not about equal rights. This is about the love of Jesus Christ. We will never reach the world trying to, trying to solve our political agenda. Because Jesus did not die for America. He died for Americans. No matter what side of the aisle they're on. No matter what their moral code is. He died just as much for the people that you turn your nose up at as he did for you. And notice this. The Greek word there, to pray for, is meaning, it means to pray on behalf 
of. It means pray for people and pray on their behalf because they don't know what to pray. Instead of saying, God, punish them or God, God, it's God. Oh God. Oh God. Let them find you because God, they're hurting and they're broken. They're broken. Instead of looking at the screen and watching protesters walk up and down and chant stuff out that you don't believe in. And you go, I hope they, I hope God strikes them down right now for standing up for such vileness. Say, Oh God, Oh God, Oh God, whatever you've got to do, heal their hearts today. God, whatever you've got to do, let them feel your love. Let them feel your love today. God, don't it's not about changing their political view let them feel your love today not about pointing out you're wrong i saw this guy god forbid i'm way off the reservation and this might be my last time so if this is my last time it's been a great ride folks this is it see you later but i saw a guy on youtube the other day and it just absolutely turned my stomach he went down to a gay pride parade and he stood there with a megaphone and he yelled out to those people they're lost and they're going to hell repent you're going to hell and he felt so justified and so vindicated because he felt like he had something in the bible to back him up but he never one time stopped and asked anybody about their life he never stopped one time and said hey can we just sit down and take a drink a cup of coffee? Because you're dressed in certain attire and you look this way and you and you and you have a relationship with certain people. I don't want anything to do with you. I hope you burn. This guy was vindicated because he thought because of his beliefs that he had somehow risen above the command of Jesus. But yet he didn't stop for a moment and just think about it. Hey, would you like to just get down, sit down and get a cup of coffee? I'd like to just kind of know any about you. Just, hey, listen, we don't have to agree to sit down and share a cup of coffee. That's what Jesus came to bring. That's what will change this world. Not the church becoming more dogmatic and more pinned in. God forbid, I'm so sick of hearing pastors use pulpits for political agendas, to use pastors to sit on pulpits and tell and, and point out all the negative politics of this world. I don't care. I don't care. What about the love of Jesus Christ? Because Jesus died for those who took the vaccine as much as he died for those who said, I'm not taking a vaccine. Jesus died for those who wore a mask and still wear a mask just as much as Jesus died for those of you that never wanted to put a mask on your face. That's what my Jesus did. And this is what he said after that statement. I'm way off. God help me today. He said, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And this is how he finished that statement. That you may be children of your father in heaven. The church has reduced being coming a child of God to believing in something. Jesus didn't. Jesus equates it with doing something. According to Jesus, our heavenly father would like us to behave like him. Not just believe in him. Jesus said, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Even the tax collectors do that. That was like the greatest slap in the face. Come on. Kids know how to do that. Even the biggest racists in this world that we are appalled at, they love their own kind. So if we only love those who we are like us, what, what reward do we have? If we're a follower of Jesus, it's not enough to do that. We won't be notable if we do that. 
Loving people who can't love us back is what... Loving people who can love us back, let's do it that way, is what everybody does. It's how everybody lives. It's the kingdom of this world 101. And here's my final point. As long as we are content to be believers rather than doers, we will be divided and we will be divided from this world. And reducing faith to a list of beliefs provides us with plenty of margin not to love, forgive, provide for, celebrate, pray for people we disagree with. Reducing faith to a list of beliefs frees us to slander people we don't align with morally or politically. It gives us a license to mock, cheer, and celebrate the failure of people whose views differ from us. And I will tell you this today, if your version of Christianity leaves the door open to those behaviors, you're nothing like Jesus Christ. And you're nothing like the kingdom he came to bring. Father, forgive me today if my flesh got in the way. I believe I was speaking with your passion, but God, I know sometimes in that passion, Joel can get involved. So Father, today, if there was anything that was said that came from my lips and not from your heart, God, I pray that you would kill that seed before it even comes forth. But God, every word that was said today that came from you, <clears throat> that came from your heart, I pray today that, that that seed would cut into the deepest parts of our heart. God, you desire to do so many amazing things, but you're looking for people that will be involved in your kingdom, that will lay down our kingdom and be a part of your kingdom. Lay down our views be a part of your lives. Lay down our political agendas, our moral codes to pick up your kingdom of love. That we would not just be people that believe, but we would be people that do. That we would love first before we condemn. That we would forgive before we even rejected. That we would heal before there was even hurt that we would be who you have desired your church to be. You said upon this rock, I will build my church. Your church was built on the principle to love as you have loved us. To be honest with you, God, I don't know how to do all this, but you have given us your grace and your spirit to empower us to do this. So Father, today we receive your grace. We receive the empowerment of your spirit to become what you've called us to be to do what you called us to do, to be that representative. And that one day the coliseums of this world that have come to represent the greatest height of man's lust, greed, and desire would one day be turned to represent the greatest point of love because you have showed us your love and therefore we show others your love by the way you loved us. Thank you today, Father. I speak all this today in Jesus' name. We give you praise. We give you glory. We give you honor in Jesus' name.